Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and today I'm going to be talking about Brazil. It goes without saying that Brazil is a very important country. It's the largest country in Latin America. It's the sixth most populous country on earth. And the president, Lula da Silva, just was inaugurated on January 1st. And this is going to have huge repercussions, not only for the region of Latin America, but for the world. Brazil is part of the BRICS block, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And in his inauguration speech, Lula called for strengthening the BRICS. He called for renewing the process of Latin American regional integration. And in his inauguration speech, Lula said that his most important priority is making sure that all Brazilians have three meals a day, fighting hunger, fighting poverty, he said that he is a representative of the working class and wants to provide more support for poor and working Brazilians who were abandoned by the previous far-right president, Bolsonaro, while the economy went through a serious crisis due to the Chicago boys-style neoliberal policies imposed by Bolsonaro. Meanwhile, what happened with Bolsonaro? He fled two days before his term ended. And where does he go? He's now living in Florida. And we're going to talk about why he fled. It's well known that Bolsonaro was extremely corrupt and had been stealing money to fund billions of dollars worth of funding for his, his presidential campaign and also just to enrich his family and his oligarch friends. He's now living in Florida. And instead, uh, Lula, when he was at his inauguration, instead of receiving the presidential sash, from Bolsonaro, Lula invited members of uh, the social movements, leaders of the social movements fighting for indigenous rights, Afro-Brazilian rights, uh, the, the rights of disabled people. So it, this is a monumental shift for Brazil, for Latin America, for the world. And I'm going to bring in now a good friend of mine and an excellent journalist who's been living in Brazil for 30 years, Brian Mir. Um, Brian, you have been reporting for Telesur and also for uh, Brazil Wire, which is a great independent media outlet that you helped to edit. You've been reporting for years now on the campaign to overthrow the Workers' Party government of Dilma Rousseff in 2016, the imprisonment of Lula in 2018 on fake charges that were later completely dropped or, or erased from his record, and the UN Human Rights Committee said that Lula was arbitrarily detained, his civil rights were violated, and the judge who imprisoned Lula in 2018, which handed the election to Jair Bolsonaro, was Sergio Moro, a U.S. asset who was then promoted to justice minister for Bolsonaro, and then he and, Bo and Bolsonaro visited CIA headquarters in Virginia. So we know that the U.S. government was deeply involved in supporting these two coups that led to the rise of Bolsonaro in the first place. Bolsonaro is now living in Florida. So let's talk about um, your reporting on Bolsonaro's return. You have referred to it as one of the most historic comebacks in political history. Talk about what brought Lula to this moment on January 1st, where he just entered his third term as president, despite being arrested, despite his party facing coups, and despite threats of violence and an attempt attempted coup by Bolsonaro? Basically, it's just been a very wild ride full of all kinds of weird surprises from the moment 
of, you know, what I first noticed this narrative shift because for a while, you know, Brazil was being treated very well in the foreign media. And this has led for some analysts to misinterpret the situation as if, you know, during the PT years, Lula was the candidate of international capital because, or he was the leader of international capital because he, he promoted neoliberalism or some kind of garbage like that. Um, when in fact, there was a while where it looked like inter international capital needed him and the Kirshners so that they could provide them as a positive alternative to Hugo Chavez, you know, um, because they weren't as radical, you know, or whatever, you know, so there was a, there was a moment when it seemed like they really needed them. And then when Chavez died, it didn't seem like they, they needed him so much anymore. And this big narrative shift occurred in the media that transformed Brazil from being this kind of like winner of a country to being this kind of loser of a country. It started with New York times with this sham article called big projects fizzle in Brazil or something, big dreams. I don't remember by Simon Romero and the media started shifting, villainizing Dilma Rousseff for nothing because she was uh, the least, you know, the least corrupt president in Brazilian history. No, no evidence ever produced that she was involved in any kind of corruption, nor Lula. But in her case, I mean, she was like, she was actively like fighting corruption. Um, so her impeachment was happened under a vast support from the international media. And some things that accelerated her impeachment were perpetrated by this judge Sergio Moro in the ambit of the Lava Jato operation, which was a joint operation between the U.S. Department of Justice, the SEC, Swiss Federal Police, and a local group of public prosecutors from Curitiba. You know, um, he did things like um, illegally wiretapped a conversation between Dilma Rousseff and Lula the week before the impeachment vote, edited it so that it made her look as bad as possible, and then gave it as a present to the largest TV news program in Brazil. You know, this is a crime. It's illegal to wiretap a standing president, you know, in Brazil, but he was given a slap on the wrist by a complacent Supreme Court at the time. So that was really the beginning of this implementation of this deep austerity neoliberal project with the Michel Temer government. Three days after Temer took office, <clears throat> after this illegitimate impeachment, because finally it's been recognized even by Congress that she didn't commit this alleged crime called fiscal peddling that was legalized two days after she left office that didn't involve any personal enrichment. Like even Congress recognizes she didn't even do that. It's something that Bolsonaro did his entire presidency because it's been legalized, but, you know, but even if it hadn't been, he'd probably be doing it. Um, three days after she left office, uh, Biden met with Tamer in Europe and, you know, give him a big hug and said, the U S is hundred percent behind you. You have all of our support. This is my message to you from Obama. So it's weird to see like Fox news and stuff <laughs> pretend that, uh, you know, Lula is Biden's candidate, that Lula's in bed with the DNC, that he, you know, this and that, when it was actually the DNC that threw Dilma Rousseff out of office and started the process of Lava Jato that culminated in Lula's political imprisonment 
you know, two years after Obama left office, but the investigation continued and uh, Lula was deliberately imprisoned to remove him from the 2018 elections for which he was leading in all of the polls, you know, and as you pointed out, after he was arrested, they canceled his candidacy, also making exceptions to the law. They had to, the Supreme Court had to open an exception to the law to enable him to be imprisoned. And then they opened an, ex, an exception to the Constitution. And then they made an exception to the Constitution to bar his candidacy from behind bars against direct orders from the UN Human Rights Commission, which are legally binding in Brazil. Um, and as you pointed out, then Moro became a justice minister for Bolsonaro. And the first thing they did after Bolsonaro took office, their first foreign visit was to Langley, Virginia. At this point, former governor of Paraná, Roberto Hecchion, joked that, you know, Sergio Moro's Wi-Fi probably clicked on immediately once he walked in CIA headquarters. So, I mean, Lula spent 580 days behind bars. During that entire time, hundreds to a group ranging in the hundreds to the thousands of labor union and social movement activists, primarily from the MST, the Landless Rural Workers Movement, maintained a rotating crowd camped out in front of the federal police headquarters in Curitiba, where Lula was held prisoner, just to yell good morning, good afternoon, and good night to him every day. He couldn't see anything on the street from his prison cell, but he could hear them. They're the first people he thanked when he got out. And they were the first people he thanked, the people from the vigil. You know, they called it the Free Lula Vigil, the Lula Leafly Vigil. And during this 580 days when he was in prison, this Lula Leafly Vigil became like a center, central area of the world left. People came from all over the world to visit the vigil and to visit Lula in prison. Alberto Fernandez visited him. The Pope sent an envoy to visit him. You know, um, leftist leaders from European Parliament and, and Germany and places like that went and visited him. Pepe Mojica, Noam Chomsky, people from, literally from all over the world came to the camp. At this point, I was their official translator. So I translated all of their communications for 580 days in a row. And I went down there a few times and, you know, it was incredible. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, he got out, he was fully exonerated. He ran for election, he won. And you saw yesterday because, uh, you know, sore loser Jair Bolsonaro, loser with a capital L, didn't want to pass the uh, presidential, I don't know how to say it in English, the, that fat, uh, the sash, presidential the sash. sash. Yeah, okay. Sash. Sash. I almost said fash. That was the ex That's what the ex-president wore. A presidential fash. Okay, the sash. Uh, you see, instead of a politician handing him the sash, it was a group of people. The American media is pretending that it was this kind of like woke group of identity politics representatives. But more than half of the people who walked up the ramp with him were connected to the Lula Livre vigil. So the 10 year old boy who walked up the ramp with him is a kid who visited the vigil. You know, the dog uh, that, that came with him up the ramp, you can't see it because it, the dog started acting up and it. it's the presidential dog. He was a stray that was adopted by the vigil that Janja, his wife adopted. You know, the, the woman in the white skirt with the, um, 
blondish hair is someone who took who was unemployed, who took, took cooking classes offered by the MST at the vigil and opened a successful restaurant. You know, the Afro-Brazilian woman uh, reported in the American media like, oh, a black woman handed him the sash. She's the president of the national, you know, um, how, can, how can you say it? like garbage recyclers union. All right. Another guy walking up the ramp with him was a union steel worker. Right. So for, uh, it's a group of people. And, you know, Chief Rione, he's 90 years old. He's a legend in the indigenous rights movement worldwide. It's not just like some indigenous guy. Right. And, uh, you know, this guy um, with cerebral palsy, I have all their names here. I mean, um, he is a uh, very popular uh, YouTube YouTuber in Brazil and uh, and he's um, someone who who fights for rights for uh, a leader in the movement of like rights for people with deficiencies. Ivan Byron is his name. Um, and so they, they weren't just and that's kind of like a reach out to the young generation of like social media types in Brazil because he's a social media personality. So it wasn't like because I see people saying like, oh, yeah, he's just an implementing like Democratic Party style wokeness. You know, because also he's appointed some black people to ministries and things like that. And it's like, you know, uh, not everything can be just imported from Fox News and applied to like Latin American and other lefts. It's not all about the United States. Brazil's 56 percent black. It's not blacks are not a minority in Brazil. They're the majority. And um, over 70 percent of Afro-Brazilians who voted voted for Lula. It would be ridiculous if he didn't, uh, if he didn't appoint any Afro-Brazilians to his cabinet. They were the main people who elected him. It's just good politics. You know? And the same for women. I mean, he, he was, women voted for Bolsonaro at a ratio of almost, um, for, voted for Lula at a ratio of almost two to one. You know, almost as high as Afro-Brazilians. So he's not going to so if he appoints a few women to his cabinet, he's engaging in woke politics, like Tucker Carlson definition of woke politics. It would be political suicide for him not to make these appointments. And if you look at the people he's appointing, they are all class conscious. They're all people who recognize that class antagonism and class warfare exists. It's not a group of neoliberals. He hasn't appointed. Uh, well, he's actually appointed. He had to appoint a few neoliberals because of the coalition he's in, you know. Um, but um, the women he appointed as health minister, minister of women's affairs, and things like that—they're not neoliberals. They're not neoliberals at all. They're, you know, they're all leftists. Like, okay, so his his minister of racial justice, um, Antonio Silvero. He's like someone who's published a book about the Marxist philosopher Lukacs. I want to talk about uh, the speech that Lula gave at his inauguration and highlight a few points and then you can respond to them. Because, I mean, talking about being class conscious, I mean, the speech was it all about fighting against poverty, supporting the working class and unions. He, this is the official transcript from the Lula website, although I'm using the auto translate here. And I mean, the, I, I reviewed the auto translate compared to the original and it's mostly accurate. I mean, there are a few minor 
errors, but people can get the gist of what Lula was saying. Here he says that his most important call when back when he was first president in 20 years ago. So this is his third term, of course. He said he called for a right to a dignified life without hunger, with access to employment, health and education. And he said that his life mission was to make sure that every Brazilian man and woman could eat three meals a day. And he said, having to repeat this commitment today in the face of the increase in poverty and the return of hunger is the most serious symptom of the devastation that has been imposed on our country. And he's talking about under Bolsonaro and under Michel Temer after the coups in 2016 and 2018. In addition to saying that, uh, Lula said in his speech that he is a representative of the representative of the working class, and his goal is to dialogue with society to promote economic growth in a sustainable way and to the benefit of all, especially those most in need. And he said that it's the goal is to govern the country with the widest social participation, including workers and the poorest in the budget and governmental decisions. He said, our first actions aim to rescue 33 million people from hunger and rescue from poverty more than 100 mil million Brazilians who have borne the hardest burden of the project of national destruction that ends today. So that's the opposite of a neoliberal speech. He's talking about rebuilding the welfare state, implementing programs to expand healthcare and education and employment and poverty reduction. He called for expanding the Bolsa Familia uh, fam uh, program, which you can talk about what that is. So talk about the working class base for the Workers' Party, Lula's campaign, and the promises that he made for social programs in Brazil. Yeah, well, it's really easy to, uh, and lazy, I think, to make all of these comparisons with US politics. You know, the Workers' Party is not the Democratic Party at all you know and um once again if lula appoints afro-brazilians to positions in a country that's unlike the us which is about 13 percent afro-american brazil's 56 percent afro-brazilian if he appoints a few people to important positions it doesn't mean that he's engaging in dnc style neoliberal you know symbolic tokenism woke politics you know it also means that um, uh, one of the big differences between the two parties is they never, the Workers' Party has never abandoned the issue of class. Like um, Tom Frank pointed out that the, the Democrats in the US did starting with the Clinton administration. So class is an important issue to them. They're called the Workers' Party for a reason. They're a working class party. Even today, despite you know, the worldwide trend of massive losses in industrial jobs due to robots and computers, which started in the 80s. So that, you know, we have a situation where Brazil's producing more steel than it was in the 80s, but it has like 80% less steel workers because of robots and things like that. Even so, you know, and one of the biggest historic union, you know, unions that historically supports the workers' party is the bank tellers union. They were decimated by the invention of the you know, ATM machine and things like that, right? But even so, even today, around 40% of elected officials from the Workers' Party are former labor union leaders. You can't say that about the Democratic Party. I mean, Lula is a, a steel, he, he's the person who founded 
the second largest labor union federation in the Americas behind only the AFL-CIO, the CUT, which is much more radical than the AFL-CIO. In fact, they had, to, they had to create a new term to describe what the CUT and COSATU were in the 1980s, which is social movement unionism, because they didn't just fight for rights for their own workers, they fought for a more equitable society with better human rights on a whole. So like the CUT unions don't fight for individual raises, they fight for raising the minimum salary and things like that. So, so these are major, major significant differences between the, the Workers' Party and the, and the Democratic Party, obviously. And I mean, uh, he made it clear. I mean, I, I don't think there's any clearer, you know, definition of the difference, the primary difference between Bolsonaro and, and, uh, and Lula and how this relates to fascism is that Bolsonaro spent the entire four years of his presidency blaming every problem he encountered on an internal enemy, you know, in the tradition of the Latin American neo-fascist dictatorships, uh, which never really tried to start wars with other countries, but always turned their country against part of their population, like Hitler did with the Jews. In Latin America, it's always been these so-called communists. And it's a broad definition that can include anybody you don't like, you know, as, the, as Trump uses in the US, calling Biden a communist and things like that, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so to, to Bolsonaro, the PT are communists, right? Not social Democrats, which is, <clears throat> I mean, there's some socialists, some social Democrats in the party, but for the last four years, everything that's gone wrong in, in Brazil, Bolsonaro has blamed it on part, a, a large part of the Brazilian population, around half the Brazilian population that support PT. Whereas on taking office in both of his speeches yesterday, Lula emphasized that the two biggest enemies of Brazil are inequality and hunger, right? And he said, these things haven't happened in Brazil because of an act of God, because of fate. They've happened because of bad policies. And this is the number one enemy of our new government, right? So I, I think that's very relevant when you, you compare the two leaders. Yeah, and Brian, talk about some of the social programs, especially Bolsa Familia, which is uh, specifically what um, Lula mentioned in his inauguration speech as something that he wants to expand, along with social security, housing support. What, what are these programs for people who don't know? Well, the, it's so many, there's so many different social pro programs that were created by the PT, it's hard to explain them succinct, succinctly. And so a lot of people always talk about Bolsa Familia. And Bolsa Familia actually is something that even like the World Bank kind of liked and bastardized and tried to export to other countries in Africa, like a watered down version of it. But basically, Bolsa Familia is the welfare program in Brazil. And it's conditional, meaning that um, parents can't collect it if their kids aren't in school, basically. If the kids don't get uh, immunized, their immunizations for school and things like that. And no, that doesn't include COVID at the vaxxers. Um, and that, so that's, that according to a study done by IPEA, the largest study was like the third biggest factor in reducing the massive poverty reduction during the PT years. 
a lot of people in the North treat it as if it was the most important factor, but uh, the most important factor were the annual above inflation level minimum wage increases. The minimum wage currently hasn't been increased above inflation since uh, 2015. Dilma Rousseff wasn't able to do it her last year in office. She just did an inflationary adjustment. So the, um, the Lula's uh, raising minimum wage, that should happen still today above inflation. That, when Lula took office in 2003, in dollar terms, the Brazilian minimum salary was $49 a month. I was living there at the time and, you know, purchasing power was super low. When he left office, it was like $315 in dollar terms. So that had an, a tremendous effect on Brazil's economic growth, you know. Um, but, you know, in addition to Bolsa Família, I can name a bunch of really interesting programs. There's one called PAA, which is the Food Acquisition Program which requires every public school uh, and every public hospital outside of the largest cities, you know, in smaller towns and rural areas and stuff like that, to buy all of the food used in their meals, like the school lunch, the school breakfast, hospital meals. It all has to be purchased from family farmers. And they're like, this is one of the things, and they stabilize the prices. So this is one of the things that, uh, it's another huge difference between Brazil and the United States, that when... Um, even today, 70% of the food consumed by Brazilian people are produced on small farms owned by family farmers, you know, because of this, basically they set up two agricultural agencies, one agency, the Ministry of Agriculture, which was designed to provide subsidy, technical assistance, subsidies and things like that to the agribusiness export sector. Uh, like sugar and, you know, all the luxury commodities producing beef and, and coffee and things like that. But he, he created another agency that received, that had an equally sized budget of around $30 billion a year called the Ministry of Agrarian Development, which was entirely geared towards technical support, access to low interest loans, subsidies and things like that for small family farmers. Like that's why you never had like the Brazilian, I'll get obscure here, but uh, the Brazilian equivalent of a John Cougar Mellencamp singing a song like Rain on the Scarecrow, of, uh, you know, in the 80s when the Reagan administration just dismantled all of uh, the United States family farm system. That never happened in Brazil. You know, and that, that's very important for um, fighting poverty too. When the homesteading law, laws that were codified into the constitution by the landless rural workers movement mean that anyone who doesn't own any lands can occupy unproductive land that's not part of a national park or uh, indigenous reservation and farm up to you know 40 hectares and then after five years they get the title to the land it's kind of like what they have in alaska i guess still they did when i was in school back a long time ago but um that's something that helps contribute to poverty reduction as well. The housing programs, there, I participate in a lot of this. In Brazil, the, um, the social movements guaranteed in the Constitution that um, uh, any scoff, tax scofflaw property that's maintained empty for more than a few years with the owner not paying back taxes can be occupied by people who don't own property. And then it's the onus falls on 
the municipal, state, or federal government to convert that property into ownership-based public housing. Um, imagine how American cities would look different if, if it was illegal to do these slumlord-type activities like land banking uh, of vacant properties, uh, which destroyed my city of Chicago in the 60s and 70s, right? Um, there's also uh, a program he created with, and when I say he created, really what he did and what's going to happen again is he created national systems of voluntary delegates and councils to take certain levels of um, power, de decision-making power over his government ministries. So like the ministry of the cities had a governing council that by law had to be made up of majority working class members from labor unions and social movements with some representation from the business community. And they created a law which enabled uh, billions of dollars of funding for the housing movements to manage their own social housing projects. So they would hire their own company to do the building, but they would do some of the building themselves. The titles for the land would go into the names of the women head of household, and it was ownership based. And so scattered across the Brazil, there's thousands of these kind of um, condominium complexes and um, apartment blocks and things like that, that are all owned by the residents that were created through this funding for social movements. And it's called like autonomous self-managed housing. Um, and I mean, I could go on and on. There's so much interesting stuff. They passed a law. I'm opening the door here. It's so hot in Brazil. God. Uh, they passed a law, uh, a new transportation code requiring all city governments to prioritize pedestrians, bicycles, and public transport over the individual automobile. Uh, most cities didn't uh, obey the, the law properly, but all of the Workers' Party governed cities like Sao Paulo did that. That enabled Fernando Haddad to reduce auto traffic in Sao Paulo by 20% during his first, you know, during his four-year term as mayor. And I mean, the list, the list goes on and on. It's lots of, you know, for policy wonks and stuff like that. It's lots of interesting policies. And one of the things that differentiates the Workers' Party from like Labour in Britain, the Democratic Party, or other fake left parties in the imperialist North are these kinds of like socialist influenced democratic council and uh, delegate systems that maintain control over large elements of public policy. It's a democracy deepening strategy. It's a strategy that if it was implemented fully, you know, would eventually lead to what Vladimir Lenin called the withering of the state. Because if you can turn all of that decision-making process into the hands of voluntary people's groups, then you don't need the government anymore. But I mean, we're a long way for, off from that in Brazil, but still you can see it's not, it's not a neoliberal policy or something to turn over billions of dollars of um, worth of programs to, into the hands of social movements, you know? Yeah, and I wanna look at another part of his speech because it shows that the economic program being pushed by Lula is literally the opposite of neoliberalism. And what, what we're seeing is Brazil's returning to the model that was actually partially created by Brazilian economists known as import substitution industrialization, ISI, which is a form of a kind of social democratic developmental economics. And Lula very clearly referenced 
all of the uh, the aspects of ISI, import substitution industrialization, which many countries in Latin America had implemented until the rise of neoliberalism in the 1980s. And I've done uh, reports here talking about the 73 oil crisis and then the growth of IMF loans and World Bank loans and also loans with private banks in the United States and with the Volcker shock and rising inflation. And then after the Volcker shock, when U.S. interest rates were risen, the U.S. dollar was very heavily uh, overvalued, which caused countries with their debt denominated in U.S. dollars to be unable to pay them. And then across Latin America, starting in 1982, Mexico defaulted, Argentina defaulted, Brazil went through an economic crisis. That was what gave rise to neoliberalism. What we're seeing now is Brazil is returning to that pre-1980s developmental economic model based on uh, significant state intervention in the economy. So in his speech, Lula spelled this out very clearly. He said immediately on his first day in office, he signed measures to, quote, rescue the role of state institutions, public banks, and state-owned companies in the development of the country, literally the opposite of neoliberalism. He called for resuming public works programs. He said public banks and companies that promote growth and innovation, such as Petrobras, will play a fundamental role in this new economic cycle. The wheel of the economy will turn again, and popular consumption will play a central role in this process. Again, that's the opposite of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is based on an export-oriented model and not value-added exports. It's exporting raw materials, soy, uh, wheat, uh, oil, not actually developing your local economy and your local industry. That's what neoliberals want Brazil to be dependent on foreign markets for imports and simply to export raw materials and agricultural products so it can't develop its own internal industry and compete against them. Lula has said his goal is to develop Brazil's internal industry. He said, we are going to resume the policy of permanently keeping the minimum wage, uh, accounting for inflation, so keeping the minimum wage high so it doesn't the real wage doesn't devalue. And he said, this is a key point. Brazil is too big to renounce its productive potential. It makes no sense to import fuel, fertilizer, oil, microprocessors, aircraft, and satellites. We have sufficient technological capacity, cap capital, and markets to resume industrialization. Brazil can and must be at the forefront of the global economy. So this is the exact opposite of the economic model proposed by Bolsonaro and his Chicago boy economic minister, Paulo Guedes, who literally was the an original Chicago boy who taught economics, neoliberal economics in Chile under the fascist uh, Pinochet dictatorship. We're talking about diametrically opposed economic models. Talk about how uh, Bolsonaro and Guedes devastated the Brazilian economy, deindustrialized the economy, stole billions of dollars, and made the country more dependent on foreign countries. Well, ironically, he had this, Bolsonaro had this narrative, this rhetoric of nationalism, he made Brazil less sovereign. He made Brazil's economy more dependent on, on foreign markets and destroyed the purchasing power of local Brazilians. Yeah, well, uh, the, you know, first of all, <clears throat> it's important to note that there was 
100% economic continuity between the Michel Temer government and the Bolsonaro government. There is no economic shift. Weeks after Temer took over as illegitimate president of Brazil after the 2016 coup, he gave a speech in New York that said that Dilma was cooed because she wouldn't get on board with this economic project called Bridge to the Future, which was maintained by Bolsonaro. That's very important to point out because some people have been dishonestly trying to pretend that there was some major difference between Temer and Bolsonaro, that Temer represented continuity with Dilma, which is ridiculous. Okay? Um, the clearest example of Bolsonaro's um, you know, and Getty's neoliberalization of the economy, I think, in, in accord with what you were explaining, is what they did with petroleum, right? Uh, in the and as you point out, like before the wave of neoliberalism, which started uh, in Chile, basically, Chile was the pilot project for the neoliberalism that took over with Margaret Thatcher and Reagan and has never left uh, the US since. Um, uh, before neoliberalism hit Brazil, even the military dictatorship engaged in import substitution. So when the oil crisis hit in the mid 70s, they said, well, let's just start running cars with alcohol. We produce so much alcohol from the sugar. We're the large, world's largest sugar producer, sugar cane and all that. Let's, so they passed a law saying that all gasoline had to contain between 15 and 27% alcohol, depending on the prices and the international, you know, the, in the markets as a price stabilization move. And that also car companies in Brazil had to build engines for their cars that ran on 100% alcohol so that Brazil would be self-sufficient in energy production. Brazil remained self-sufficient in energy production until Bolsonaro and Guedes took over when they shut down several oil refineries and started shipping oil up to the United States so they could be refined and then purchasing it back as gasoline, which is a perfect example of like core periphery capitalism. You know, what happens in historically in underdeveloped nations, they export raw materials without any value added technology to the north and then buy the products, the, the finished products back at, you know, much higher prices. Um, so that's like one clear example. They also like they privatized Petrobras's gas station chain, which was the largest gas station chain in Brazil. And uh, the majority shareholder in that now is BlackRock. So now BlackRock owns, you know, most of Brazil's gas stations. And, uh, you know, so I'll just those are two examples of the havoc that they wreaked uh, economically on the country and how they turned over sovereignty. Now, Brian, I want to talk about Lula's foreign policy. And in his speech, Lula called for strengthening the BRICS bloc. He also called for reinvigorating the process of regional integration and reviving institutions like, for instance, Mercosur and UNASUR. And these are institutions that Bolsonaro tried to sabotage in alliance with the United States. Bolsonaro subordinated Brazil to the U.S. and he withdrew from UNASUR. And, and waged war on all of these institutions of regional integration. And now Lula, immediately on day one, he made it clear that one of his top priorities is unifying Latin America. His, at his inauguration, there were left-wing leaders from across the region, including 
Colombia's President Gustavo Petro, the President of Honduras, Tamara Castro, uh, Bolivia's President Luis Arce, Bolivia's former President Evo Morales, also Pepe Mujica, the former President of Uruguay, was there. And um, in terms of global integration, China's Vice President Wang Qishan also attended Lula's inauguration. And of course, China and Brazil are both part of the BRIC system. Now, there was another very important symbolic thing that Lula did at his inauguration, which is that when he was well, when he was at his physical inauguration, he had a flag of Mercosur, which is this economic bloc integrating the countries of South America so they can uh, you know, weaken their dependency on the global north and the United States. And I'll turn the audio down here, but you can see that right next to the Brazilian flag is the Mercosur flag. So again, this is another example of how Lula's foreign policy is diametrically 180 degree opposed to the foreign policy of Bolsonaro, which was about uh, breaking ties with the left-wing governments in the region, about subordinating Brazil to the United States. Bolsonaro recognized U.S. coup puppet Juan Guaido as the fake president of Venezuela, and Bolsonaro backed cross-border terror attacks on Venezuelan sovereign territory. And uh, Lula has restored relations with the real president, the real uh, government of Venezuela. And at his inauguration, the president of the National Assembly of Venezuela, Jorge Rodriguez, attended. And today, he's going to, uh, Lula, today is January 2nd. Lula's meeting with a series of um, leaders from Latin America, including uh, uh, Brazil, uh, sorry, Bolivia, Colombia, Honduras, Argentina. And he's meeting with Jorge Rodriguez, the president of Venezuela's National Assembly. So um, talk about his foreign policy, his commitment to regional integration, and Lula's call for reinvigorating and strengthening the BRICS bloc. Well, you know, the history of Latin America is a history of um, the U.S. constantly trying to break up any kind of unity and uh, pushing heavily bilateral relations. Um, Lula rightly believes, as do, you know, Nicolas Maduro and most other Latin American left leaders and including a lot of uh, even center-right business people and things like that, that united, uh, Latin America has more bargaining power with other big superpowers like the United States and China. Um, so he always pushes for multilateralism. Um, uh, one thing that a lot of people probably don't know, I'll just focus on this as an example of foreign policy. There's a bank, a development bank in Brazil called BNDES, the National Economic and Social Development Bank, which finances development projects uh, with a focus on things that will help uh, reduce poverty, at least under the Lula administration, right? Not only in Brazil, but also around the world, around Latin America and even in Africa and, and places like that. One of the things that caused the U.S., I think, to turn on the Workers' Party governments was that during the Lula and Rousseff presidencies, the BNDS had a larger portfolio than the World Bank. It was bigger than the World Bank. And it was lending money to development, pro development projects without forcing neoliberal conditionality agreements down other governments' throats 
like the U, like the U.S. backed World Bank and IMF always do, which you know crippled, destroyed the public health and education systems in dozens of countries in Latin America and Africa during the 80s and 90s. And so all of a sudden, not only was China, you know, lending money with no strings attached all over Africa, just destroying the influence of the IMF, uh, the horrible influence of the IMF. Brazil was doing the same thing. <clears throat> An example of projects that were financed by the BNDS were um, a port project in Cuba, which Bolsonaro spent four years using to attack Lula as a communist. He tried to pretend that this was a gift and not a loan. It was a loan with interest, but there's no conditionalities on it. And also one of the new metro lines in the Caracas subway system during the Hugo Chavez administration, things that the IMF and World Bank would never finance, right? And even if they did, they'd say, oh, we'll do this if you cut 25% out of your public education budget until you pay back the money or something, you know? Um, so now the person he's put in charge of Band AS, Aloisio Mercodanti, is a Marxist, you know? He's a former senator. Um, he was the director of the Perzio Abramo Foundation, which is like, you know how in Germany, different political parties have their own think tanks, like Rosa Luxemburg and Conrad uh, Adenauer and whatever. So in Brazil also. So Perzio Abramo was like Brazil's Stiftung. It was uh, on Brazil's Worker Party Stiftung. So he was the head of the Worker Party's uh, foundation. Now he's in charge of BNDS and he's a total multilateralist. He's a Marxist, just as the new minister of the economy is, Fernando Haddad. You know, he did his PhD thesis on social programs during the Soviet Union. Um, so this is this is also, in addition to like um, putting more energy into Mercosur, UNASUR, um, a strengthened BNDS, which Bolsonaro was crippling, is also good for Latin American integration. In addition, he has suggested something I think is really interesting because obviously preserving the remaining Amazon rainforest is important, but it shouldn't be done at the hands of like uh, institutions connected to the imperialist north, which are, you know, the imperialist north is responsible for all the deforestation in the Amazon. In the 80s, Burger King was the biggest purchaser of, of beef farmed in former Amazon rainforest in the world. And Cargill's made a fortune off of deforestation. Right? It was the World Bank that convinced the military dictatorship to deforest the state of Rondonia as part of its development strategy. So the North shouldn't have anything to do with this, really. Um, they're the ones, it, unless it, it's through prosecuting their companies and citizens who purchase pr uh, project products illegally extracted from the Amazon region. Lula has suggested that a new block be created uh, comprised of Brazil, the Congo, Indonesia, and other countries that have large swaths of rainforest in them uh, as a means of increasing power to protect existing rainforest uh, and, and increasing sovereignty over this rainforest. And that's, a, that's another example. I hope it's through. Now, you, you pointed out how what Lula is saying now is the direct opposite of neoliberalism. Remember, he's gonna to have to make some compromises. He said his priority is eliminating hunger and um, and uh, and reducing inequality. I mean, that's gonna be the top priority. I mean, he's had to put 
he put a neoliberal in charge of the planning department, Michelle Tabbitt, because she was a third place presidential candidate. And then she helped campaign with him. And she represents an important party for his congressional majority. So she's running planning now. Um, you know, but for the most part, uh, this cabinet he's put together is much farther left than his first cabinet was back in 2003 when I was living here. I remember it well. Yeah, and let, let, let's talk about uh, Bolsonaro. We, we talked about how Bolsonaro only came to power because of two U.S.-backed coups, the first against uh, Dilma in 2016, the second against Lula in 2018, the imprisonment on false charges. And, of course, we know that the judge who imprisoned Lula on false charges, Sergio Moro, is a longtime U.S. asset, and he and Bolsonaro immediately visited CIA headquarters after Bolsonaro came to power. As even the Associated Press acknowledged in this report, Brazil's far-right president visits CIA on friendly tour. Now, Bolsonaro, two days before his term ended, he fled to Florida, and now Bolsonaro is living in Florida. Originally, it was reported that he was going to go to Mar-a-Lago, Trump's resort in Florida, Instead, he ended up going to Orlando and is living in a, a gated community. Um, and he's living apparently in, in the house that belongs to some uh, like MMA fighter, a Brazilian MMA fighter who supports Bolsonaro. But there's this, there's this video that Bolsonaro supporters were posting on social media as, as an effort to humanize you know, Bolsonaro. And it shows him in this gated community in Orlando, Florida. And... Uh, of why did he flee? Of course, he fled because Bolsonaro was blatantly engaged in corruption. He siphoned off billions of dollars of state funds to fund his own presidential campaign, to enrich his family, to enrich his friends and his oligarch donors. And he knew he was going to face legal consequences with the end of presidential immunity. So he fled to the United States, the country that helped install him in power in the first place. Now, Again, I want to stress this is a deep irony because Bolsonaro had always pushed the narrative that he was a based nationalist, but he sold out his country to U.S. corporations. He only came to power thanks to U.S. meddling. He visited CIA headquarters, and now he's living in Florida. And of course, this isn't surprising considering that in many rallies in Brazil, when he was president, Bolsonaro would appear with three flags, the Brazilian flag, the U.S. flag and the Israeli flag. And yet he calls himself this great, you know, nationalist, when in reality we see that his political loyalty is not really to Brazil, it's to the U.S. empire. So just talk about how people in Brazil have responded to Bolsonaro fleeing to Florida. And I mean, this to me, I can, I can imagine that this is very embarrassing for anyone who, who supported Bolsonaro and claimed that he was protecting their country. Well, you know, the, uh, his followers, um, there's a historic issue in Brazil, which was really fomented during the military dictatorship, which they call stray dog syndrome. Brazil's largest television network, um, Globo, was created as a, as a tool for social control during the dictatorship. And it was Time Warner who sent a crew down from Indiana and basically ran the network for the first year of its existence. And it's always beaten into the minds of its audience that the U.S. is the best. The U.S. is the greatest. And so 
even though Bolsonaro came with this um, nationalist rhetoric, he never really like criticized the U.S. or anything. I mean, he would criticize Venezuela all the time. He started off trying to pick a fight with China and immediately lost and then had to <laughs> had to fire everyone involved with the anti-China stuff from his cabinet. Um, he fled. He didn't just like leave for the U.S. I mean, he fled. He was so panicky after the federal police announced that they were going to call him in for questioning on January 1st for the charges that have been levied against him for causing hundreds of thousands of deaths during the pandemic by spreading disinformation, not as a citizen journalist, you know, uh, YouTuber or something saying that um, blowing ozone in your anus will cure COVID, that worm medicine will cure COVID or whatever. He was um, saying this as official head of Brazil's public health system during a pandemic, disobeying the guidelines from the health system directors themselves, which in Brazil constitutes a kind of treason, especially when there's a lot of death involved, you know? So he got panicky. Sorry, I should point out, we're talking about over 700,000 deaths in Brazil yeah, from COVID, which makes, makes Brazil, it has the highest amount of deaths per capita in the entire world. Yeah, including 12 of my wife's family members, unfortunately, who lived in a city that has had a Bolsonaro fanatic as mayor. Um, uh, but what the what the congressional investigation ruled was that if it you know if it weren't for Bolsonaro there still would have been hundreds of thousands of deaths uh, in their investigation which was based on thousands and thousands of pages of testimony and evidence and things like that in addition to raising charges against him for embezzling money from chloroquine production um, they ruled that. Of the 680,000 deaths from COVID, his actions directly led to 300,000 deaths. If it weren't for him telling people not to get vaccinated, not to pay attention to the social distancing and things like that, um, 300,000 lives could have been saved. And he's actually, they filed charges in The Hague against him as well for that. And that's why he's in Florida, because the US doesn't respect the, the human rights bastion of the United States doesn't respect the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Uh, but anyway, I'm going off on tangents here. He fled for Florida without even handing over power to his vice president. He was so panicky when he found he was gonna get called in for questioning that he just like ran, he held a weepy uh, Facebook Live which is weeping and saying, I tried. He was basically apologizing to his followers saying he tried to hold a military coup and failed. And he just ran to the airport and flew to, Miami, to Orlando. And so for like 36 hours, Brazil had no president. It just had a military general assuming the role of acting president without having the actual power handed over to him. So it was a moment in which any... Um, Anyone could have claimed right to the presidency. I mean, he opened up a whole, uh, the same thing happened in 1964 on the eve of the military coup. And so it was, a, it was a little bit tense for that moment. Subsequently, it's come out with Bolsonaro there in Florida and Jose Aldo's house, which has a minion themed bedroom. It's come out uh, a journalist named Daniel Caesar from the news portal 
IG heard from an ally of the president that there's a group of people working with Bolsonaro to try to enact a military coup led by his vice presidential candidate, Braga Neto, General Braga Neto, some other military leaders, and um, Valdemir Costa Neto, who is the president of Bolsonaro's liberal party. You never hear Tucker Carlson mention the name of Bolsonaro's political party. It's the liberal party, okay? They were planning to hold a military coup. And so the strategy was- Sorry to cut you off really quickly, Brian, but for people who don't know, because in the U.S., you know, political terms often mean the opposite of what they mean in the rest of the in the rest of the world. Liberals in Latin America are associated with the right. Like when you say a liberal party, I mean it's clearly people who are right wing. So uh, there are there are even parties that call themselves the progressive liberal parties in Latin America, but they're not progressive. They are right wing parties. Yeah, that's good to point out, but I still think it's funny that it's the liberal party. It, it is funny. Tucker, Carlson, <laughs> Tucker Carlson's always like whining about uh, Lula being a liberal and Bolsonaro being like the populist man of the people when literally his party is called the liberal party, even though liberal means neoliberal. So economically, you could say the Democrats are liberals too, which makes it even more confusing. You know, liberal historically in the U.S. has meant progressive. No, you, sorry, you could say... That the Republicans are also liberals. Also, know. yeah. Both the yeah. Democrats and the public, Republicans are liberal. There's yeah. no difference economically between the two parties. Very little, you know. Um, yeah, I'm not trying to confuse anybody here. I just think it's funny that, like, all of these people, like Matthew Trimund and Tucker Carlson, they never mention the name of Bolsonaro's party. That's all. But anyway, yeah. back to the subject of the coup. Um, part of the plan was that Liberal Party leader Valdemir Costanetto was going to go and assure Congress that nobody was going to lose their job. They were going to arrest um, the head of the electoral courts, uh, Alexander de Moraes, and declare a military takeover. And so Braga Neto apparently was tasked with trying to get foreign support for this military coup. And they went both to Russia and the United States and asked for support in a military coup. Ironically, uh, the United States and Russia allied against the military coup. <laughs> so, and, and also both the United States and Russia provided security during the inauguration yesterday. So I think it's, it's good to see that Russia and the United States are still capable of working together on a few things. Um, yeah, I should point out that I mentioned that China's vice president attended the inauguration. Also, the president of the Russian State Council also attended and and is meeting with Lula. So, uh, you know, there are these people who are trying to push this narrative that Lula is like a Soros candidate or whatever, which is ridiculous, or that the Democrats put him in power. It's it's nonsense. He is a founder of the BRIC system. He had representatives from China and Russia and Venezuela and Nicaragua at his inauguration. He wants Brazil to be non-aligned, but it's going to have so it will have relations with the United States. And he's clear about that. The U.S. Senate representative, although it was it was a low level minister, it wasn't like Antony Blinken or someone. So he's not going to Harris, but uh, she bailed, I guess. But anyway, the point is that. Brazil is going to maintain good relations with the U.S., but it's also going to have very good, excellent relations with China and Russia and other countries around the world. I mean, 
Lula wants Brazil to assume the political and economic role on the global stage that it should assume as a massive country, the sixth most populous country. Brazil is too big to be subordinated and controlled by a foreign power if a leader is independent. Bolsonaro subordinated Brazil, but Lula's goal is for Brazil to be a leader in the new multipolar world. He said that very clearly. He published a, an article calling for a multipolar world. Anyway, th with that said, um, let's talk more about the coup attempt that Bolsonaro and his supporters tried to carry out. Um, another important detail about this, Brian, is that you've been doing reporting on the violent attacks, the attempts at having a violent attack, um, specifically this guy with hilariously named this right-wing Brazilian named George Washington Sousa confessed to trying to bomb the Brasilia airport. He told people that he worked at a gas station. In reality, he owns a chain of gas stations in five Amazon states. In other words, he's a wealthy businessman who has profited from Bolsonaro's support for illegal deforestation. And he tried to portray himself as a working class supporter of Bolsonaro, but in fact, he's a rich guy. And, and he attempted a terror attack to prevent Lula from becoming president. And, and of course, there were other attempts at, at terror attacks by Bolsonaro supporters as well. Well, this was a, a network. He was collected, connected to a network of people, right? Um, so uh, including their suspect, the uh, congressman who's a former general was involved because he was filmed um, telling people in front of a, uh, military barracks that there was going to be a big surprise on Christmas Eve, the moment when the bombing was supposed to be taking place. And the strategy that George Washington Sosa, Washington actually being a really popular name in Brazil, just like Jackson and Jefferson, is funny. Well, um, and, and Hamilton, who was the vice president, yeah, Hamilton, the vice president was Hamilton. Pele's actual name, Edson, it's a misspelling of Edison, you know, as in Thomas Edison. So this is common in Brazil. People were making a really big deal that the guy's name is like George Washington. I know like 30 people named Washington in Brazil. Um, but it's, it's ironic that the George was spelled like English George as well. Uh, but anyway, I, I should add that, that I, sorry to cut yeah. you off again, but I should add that I know uh, also a bunch of Vladimir's, uh, Lenin's. I even know someone named Stalin. Uh, I know someone named Krupskaya. So it's funny. I mean, there are a lot of people in Latin America with, you know, the names of like U.S. leaders, but there's also a lot of people with names of Russian Soviet leaders. And <laughs> I, I, one time I met a I did meet a Mao one time, not, not a last name, a first name, someone who is named Mao. <laughs> yeah, I think phonetically it's harder with the Asian communist leaders than it is with the Russians, at least in the Portuguese language. But of course, I know lots of people. Um, and not just political people, but like, you know, public figures from Russia, like Valeska, Lula's defense attorney's name is, Vale her first name is Valeska, named after a Russian fashion model from the 60s, you know, who was popular in Brazil. Um, but back to the point about this Washington, is that it was actually like a network of people who were profiting from Amazon deforestation. So it, it didn't look like it represented it doesn't look like they had foreign funding, although foreign agents associated with Robert Mercer were definitely edging, you know, pushing towards a military coup, you know, like Matthew Trimond and things like that. And some of Trump's other friends and stuff were definitely like creating hashtags in English on Twitter. Brazil was stolen, Brazilian spring, 
all of this stuff over these protests that were happening in front of the barracks. This guy, George Washington Souza, was someone who was participating in the daily protests in front of the barracks, which is why incoming justice minister and former Communist Party governor of Maranhão State, Flavio Dino, said that these, these um, little protests happening in front of the barracks um, that had been going on were turning into kind of like breeding grounds for possible terrorists, which is why he's going to shut. Um, they've already pretty much been shut down. They, they investigated him and found that it was all theater being financed by rich Brazilians like, you know, in the category of this George Washington Souza. He was busted attaching an explosive device to a kerosene truck that was heading towards the Brazilian airport. The goal was that <clears throat> they would kill some people and this would send a signal to all of these other uh, supposed sleeper cells of terrorists operating in these protests in front of the military barracks, which would start spreading chaos in cities across the country. They went to his house and he had been stockpiling weapons. And then he told them apparently where other weapons were hid and they went into a patch of forest on the outskirts of Brazil and found dozens of bulletproof vests and machine guns and things like that. But it, you know, it was thwarted because these idiots, <laughs> basically they, they plan everything on, on what's up or telegram too. And so it's not, I mean, like if you, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give anyone any, any ideas, but it just seems stupid to be using a, a smartphone to plan terrorist attacks. Um, but then, okay, so that was like, I think blown way out of proportion by the media, which loves these kinds of stories as if there was going to be this massive wave of terrorist attacks yesterday. Lula wouldn't be safe. Lula shouldn't ride in an open car. You know, they should cancel the inauguration. They should cancel the, um, the party that his wife Janja had organized uh, after the inauguration with some of the best musical acts in Brazil that went on until 4 a.m., a free concert outdoors on the main quad in the, in, in the Brasilia capital. They should just cancel all of that out of fear of violence. And to their credit, the Workers' Party said, no, that's a sign that we're afraid. We're not afraid of these guys. We're not afraid of anybody. So Lula went in an open car. I remember all kinds of people during the campaigning saying that they should, Lula shouldn't go out on the street. Someone's going to kill him. He visited dozens of cities in an open vehicle, moving at five, three miles an hour through these massive crowds. And, uh, you know, if you if you start showing fear, then you've lost. Why should you be the leader of your country if you're afraid of everything? If you're panicky and stuff, you can't walk, you can't go out in public. It doesn't even make sense. So none of that happened. Instead, and I had a a foreign news agency get in touch with me asking if I could do coverage on the inauguration in Brasilia. I wasn't I was supposed to go, but I had to cancel because I've got this bad cold and I didn't want to sit. 80 hours in a bus, 40 hours there and 40 hours back with coughing and everything. <coughs> Excuse me. So, but anyway, I said I couldn't go. And the guy was like, oh, well, stay safe, stay safe. It's like, I didn't feel like I was in any danger yesterday. <laughs> I, there wasn't anything. All they had was they caught a guy with a knife in Brasilia. And this made like CNN, not CNN, it made Sky News and some other international news channels. It's like, oh my God, 
Look at the climate of fear in Brazil. A man with a knife was caught and fireworks, which they described in the media as explosive devices. They, didn't, they don't even say in the story if the guy was a Lula supporter. I guess he was probably just a Lula supporter who forgot he had a knife in his pocket or was drunk, you know, trying to bring fireworks in. But uh, no violence. One guy, poor guy, went to the beach with a Lula towel in the most right-wing reactionary fascist German-filled state in Brazil, Santa Catarina, and was beaten up. So those were the two violent incidents yesterday. It's a long cry from the so-called January 6th capital event that was going to be much bloodier that everyone was warning about in Brazil. In other words, the electoral court very wisely has investigated, it's passing its information onto the federal police and the justice minister, Flavio Dino, about who was financing these protests in favor of a violent military coup Technically, this is a form of treason in Brazil, you know, fighting for a coup, eliminating democracy. They found out who the financiers are and they've cut off the money going to these protests a few days ago. And they're just, they've just disappeared. And even one of the people involved in was like, this was all just theater. That was just theater. It was paid for. It was all organized from the top down. The minute the money was cut off, everyone left, you know, and... Uh, and it's over. So all of this stuff about, oh, my God, how is Lula going to govern because the country is so polarized, blah, blah, blah. Brazil's always been, in my opinion, since I moved here in 1991, and we've always noticed about 15 percent, maybe 20 percent of Brazilians are fascist sympathizers. It's always been that way. So now we're back where we were before with 15 to 20 percent fascist sympathizers. It's um, unfortunate but um, at least Lula's already gained control of Congress and the Senate, and he's already passed a congressional, uh, a constitutional amendment. He passed before he even took office. So now he's got uh, members of the third largest political party in, in Congress. PT is the second. The Liberal Party is first. He's got them in his cabinet. They were, they were some of the people that were considered to be aligned with Bolsonaro that were going to make it hard for him to govern. They're all on lula's side now brazil has this history of as i mentioned last time i was on your show it's like a large percentage of the political class always sides with whoever's in power bolsonaro lost he lost like 70 percent of his political support in congress and the senate you know and even among the regular population nobody wants to look like they're backing a loser so he's so bolsonaro you know he's still got his fanatical fans and stuff but um they're dwindling fast. And that's all I have to say. And we might have some isolated incidences of violence. And it's important to find out if there's any connection to Steve Bannon in the U.S. far right with this. Uh, but it looks like nothing that was planned was planned very professionally. And now that the machine of the state is on, on top of it, um, I don't think they, there's much danger of something really big happening anymore. I, I just want to point out regarding this George Washington guy that one of the other people they arrested in connection with him um, was a YouTuber who had had his far right YouTube channel pulled down by a uh, superior electoral court minister, Alexandre de Moraes, during the lead up to the election for violating Brazilian laws regarding 
election fraud. He was spreading disinformation about Lula. At the time, you know, these free speech absolutists, including Greenwald and other people who are influenced by the U.S. Libertarian Party and the Cato Institute and stuff like that, were trying to say, oh, look, he's repressing uh, freedom of speech. But one of these guys who he supposedly repressed, Alexander Marais, the Superior Court <laughs> Justice, uh, was literally attempting to kill thousands of people. You know, he was plotting to kill thousands of people, to blow up part of an airport on Christmas Eve, the busiest flight day of the year in Brasilia. Yeah, I mean, this this is a a common pattern. Whereas people who are inciting violence, who are uh, you know planning attacks, are portrayed as you know um, uh, martyrs for free speech, but um, I want to start wrapping up here, Brian, because we're already at over an hour. Um, I want to I want you to give you an opportunity really quickly to talk about an excellent documentary that you produced for Telesur English. You sent me a copy of it, and I watched it this morning, and it's it's a great um, great documentary that's called The Comeback. It's only 24 minutes, and in this documentary, you um, show the perspective of social movement activists from groups like the MST, the Movement for of Rural Workers. Um, uh, the movement of um, landless workers. You also talk to people who were involved in the uh, Vigilia uh, Lula Libre, the vigil that was outside when he was in prison for over 500 days. You interview people um, who are from the state that Lula himself was born and raised in, in a very small uh, house in a rural area where he had no um, running, clean, running clean water and electricity. Um, so tell, tell us about the reporting that you've done. This documentary shows reporting you've done for years now. Um, tell us about this project and where people can see it. Okay, well, basically, I bought a video camera in 2016, 2015, because there was this false narrative going on in the Anglo left, even in publications like Jacobin, that the... Um, organized left that had built the workers party made up of the labor unions and social movements was dead that it wasn't giving any resistance to the coup uh and that you know it was time for the brazilian left to move past these people to forget about lula to forget about the 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 could labor union federation nobody was doing any resistance and i saw people like arguing this not just on the pages of Jacobin, but all over the place on the social media. At the same time, there were these massive protests going on. It was like, I got to buy a video camera and start filming this because people are just lying about what's going on. Um, and so I did. And I filmed, for example, in 2017, there was a protest against Michelle Temer's neoliberal labor reforms that... Uh, that brought over 200,000 labor union members from all over Brazil onto the streets of Brasilia. And they managed to, sh they had to shut down Congress because the president of Congress was so afraid. It was dispersed with tear gas. You know, I remember reading a Jacobin article just pretending that that didn't even happen. Uh, and so I started filming everything I could. And eventually a Brazilian indie media site called Knockout hired me to, for some of my protest footage, and then uh, Telesur hired me in 2018. So this documentary starts with um, me going to the ABC Metal Workers Union on April 5th, 2018, 
when Lula was ordered to turn himself into the federal police and tens of thousands of people surrounded the union hall to try and block the police from coming in. So it starts there. It goes to the vigil where uh, these people stayed camped out, you know, hundreds, thousands of people. I was there on New Year's Eve 2019 filming. And, um, and then it follows Lula on the it jumps forward and follows him on the campaign trail from the eyes of social movements and labor unions. And it culminates with his victory. So, and I, you know, I, I followed Lula to his childhood home. Um, I, I went to like four camp, massive campaign rallies and just interviewed, to give you an idea, four of the people I interviewed in this documentary ended up in the government, in Lula's transition team in the government. One, Rosa Amarin from the MST, the Landless World Workers Movement, was elected to state Congress in Pernambuco. Another is uh, Workers' Party President Glazy Hoffman. So it's a lot of people talking, saying interesting things um, that you wouldn't normally see in English. And I subtitled it, uh, and it's airing right now on Telsur English. It's in rotation. Uh, it's been coming on at like nine at night. Um, eventually, they should upload it onto their Facebook, their YouTube page. You know, so I hope uh, you guys can see it. Yeah. Well. Um, I want to thank you for the work that you, you've done, Brian, not only at Telesor English, but also at Brazil Wire. Everyone should check out Brazil Wire. That's Brazil spelled like the Portuguese and Spanish spelling with an S. Um, Brian is a co-editor of, of the independent English language media outlet Brazil Wire, which for me has been an invaluable resource to understand what's going on in the country. Um, Brian, any final thoughts to conclude with? I mean, just um, let's end here reflecting briefly on what we what can happen in, in the years to come in Brazil and in the world because you know I've stressed that Lula wants Brazil to be a significant player on the global stage he has very ambitious um, plans for the country and I'm curious just concluding here what you think things will what what we should be looking at in the years to come what we should keep an eye out for first of all I think we should keep an eye out for um self-proclaimed radical leftists in the Anglo North, where they, they, they don't ever elect anyone who's a leftist at any kind of office, to find little faults in the Workers' Party government and use it to attack and we can support for Brazil, for, for Lula and the Workers' Party. That's a given. You know, I already see it starting. Um, secondly, we should expect that he makes some compromises you know, that he won't be able to push through everything he's trying to push through, but we shouldn't interpret that as selling out or, you know, um, lying to the people or something like that. It's a very complex political situation in Brazil right now. I mean, he's got all kinds of snakes uh, on board with his government because as Daniel Guerin wrote in 1938, eventually the, the same bourgeois who put fascism in power realize that it's not working for them. You know, so he's got some, lots of people who actually helped put Bolsonaro in power back in his coalition. Despite that, I think we should expect to see some really interesting things happening internationally in terms of strengthening um, non-aligned movements and, uh, and blocks like the BRICS and, the, and Mercosul and things like that, and expect poverty to diminish, deforestation to diminish. So in general, I think we should expect a lot of good things, but not be 
not immediately like try to cancel him because he does something that we don't like, like appoint a really crappy communications minister, which he just did in the name of coalition politics. I mean, it's not a reason to cancel the guy. Yeah, well, thank you, Brian. Um, we had a lot of good comments today, a very vibrant discussion. Um, I want to thank everyone who commented in all the super chats. There are a few questions here maybe we can very briefly respond to from the commenters. One is from a left is best. Do you think Lula will investigate the U.S. role in Lava Jato or Bolsonaro's visit to the CIA? That's a great question. I think that the U.S. should investigate the U.S.'s role in Lava Jato and Bolsonaro's visit to the CIA. Honestly, I mean, it happened over there. He doesn't have really power to investigate things in the U.S. Yeah, very good point. Um, and, I, and I will say just my opinion briefly is that Lula has already made it clear he's going to try to keep good relations with the U.S. He knows that the U.S. backed the coup against Dilma and the imprisonment of him on fake charges. So he's not an idiot, but he also understands that the U.S. has the world's second largest economy after China, and it's still a massive power. It, it can threaten to destabilize his government. So he's a diplomat. He understands how this, these things work. And, um, and also, man, he understands that the Democratic Party needs him right now just because Bolsonaro put all of his eggs in the Trump-Steve Bannon basket. So it's like if, if, if Bolsonaro had maintained a little bit of distance from Trump and Bannon, they probably would have supported him holding on to power. But they literally can't right now because he refused to recognize Bolsonaro's electoral victory. For, the, for a month and a half, you know? For Biden's. He refused to recognize Biden's Biden, victory. Yeah, Biden's electoral victory. Like, Bolsonaro just repeatedly shot himself in the foot. Biden administration was trying to work with him. You know, they sent envoys down. They sent CIA down there. And just like he kept shooting himself in the foot. So they can't work with him right now. They, they're stuck with Lula for at least a year or two. Yeah, very good point. Um, another brief question here. Um, I want to thank... David, David, for the super chat. Here's one from Mike V. Um, the Prime Minister Motley of Barbados has been a strong leftist leader of CARICOM, which is the Caribbean um, or, region, or, or, Organization of Regional Unity in the Caribbean. Do you think Lula will work to strengthen ties with the Caribbean as well and CARICOM? Before you answer, I'll just briefly say that if you look at the um, inauguration live stream for 13 hours that Brazil published, and I went through a lot of it, I, I watched all, I skimmed through and watched all of the leaders he met with, and he met with a lot of leaders from the Caribbean. So I think, um, for instance, Ralph Gonsalves, the prime minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, was present at the inauguration. Uh, what do you think, Brian? Yeah, I, um, he supports all processes of multilateralism and multipolarism, even to his own fault at some point, like going with the UN occupation of getting on board, subordinated under Kofi Annan and the UN and the Chilean leader of Minostas sending military to Haiti as Argentina and other countries in Latin America did, Uruguay. Uh, he, but he's always supports any kind of multilateral process, especially centered on the global south. So he definitely will support Comic-Con. Okay, those are all of the um, questions in the super chat. I wish I could, I wish we had time to respond to the other questions. I value you know the non-super chats as well, but again, there's a, there's like a thousand comments here. Um, so with that, I'm going to conclude the stream here. Um, so Brian, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Ben. Can't wait yeah, to my see pleasure. you sometime. Yeah, I hope to. I hope to.
And thanks to all of the comments, um, all the discussion, and I'll see everyone next time. See ya.